Conversations on Teaching, Learning, and Bio-Multilingualism, the podcast of the ICME-EE project at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. As is mentioned in the name, the main goal of this podcast is to embrace multilingualism. So we are going to have conversation around this topic in the classroom and how teachers can support bio-multilingual development. I'm Araceli Lovato, and I will be your host. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Hi, welcome to a new episode of ICME podcast. Today, actually, it's a really good or special episode. It's the first time that we're going to be two people interviewing um, our um, interviewee. Uh, so we are going to be two hosts today. Um, you may know him because I already interviewed him like two months ago, kind of. Yeah, I think about two months ago. Yeah. He's Brandon Haynes. Haynes, like the capture. <laughs> I always forget about your last name. I mean, I know how to write it down, but. And our interview, our um, guest today is Nancy Common. Uh, she uh, she is a professor that we really love her. She's very close to us, so this is also the reason why I will say that it's a very special. Um, Um, episode. So welcome, Dr. Kamen, to our episode. Thank for, you. Yeah, yeah, welcome. And yeah, for me, it's even a little bit more personal. Dr. Cummins was an uh, integral part in me getting my master's in education. <laughs> you, didn't work. you were head of the program, correct? Well, I was one of the heads of the program, yes. <laughs> so. So yeah, we are very, very close to her and we really love her in ICB. I mean, we love our, all of our guests, obviously, <laughs> but... <laughs> but yes, Dr. Cummins holds a uh, special place with us. <laughs> Thank so, you. So, I always start our podcast in, um, asking the professor if they would like to introduce themselves. So, would you mind to do that for us? I'm happy to do that. So I, as Araceli said, I'm Nancy Cummins and I have recently retired from the University of Colorado at Denver as a clinical professor um, in culturally and linguistically diverse education. I've been working mm, four decades now. My entire career has been working with multilingual learners, starting as a bilingual classroom teacher and all kinds of different roles, um, district roles, university roles, consultant, author. Um, it's my heart, it's my life, and I feel like I'm, I'm very happy to be interviewed today because I feel like I've learned some things over the past four decades. In some ways, nothing is new, and in some ways, we've learned a lot. Um, so I'm happy to share those ideas on the podcast. Great. Um, so to start us off, um, you mentioned that you've been uh, in the game for about four decades now. So you've been an educator and advocate for multilingual learners for a very long time. So what do you think are some of the most important understandings that you have uh, found and been pushed by and driven in your career? Um, well, one of the things that I would say characterizes my career always has been to try to tie theory to practice and to, to take 
what's out there in the world of linguistics and in the world of education and language and teacher preparation and to say, well, but what does that mean every day in the classroom and working with children and their families? So I will, um, I can give you a little list and then I'll talk about each one of them. One idea that really has struck me and that I've worked a lot with is the notion of the conceptual reservoir, um, our brains as being a conceptual reservoir that's accessed through our multiple languages and dialects. Another is that an instruction with multilingual learners that meaning is everything, that the focus is on meaning and concepts and ideas. Um, I have spent quite a bit of my career on the notion of restructuring schools and taking a school-wide perspective and not just an individual classroom perspective on how to work with and um, foster and help support multilingual learners. And probably the most important one I've come to full circle in my career is the notion of identity development. Um, and that's where I think I'd like to start talking a little bit. Um, and it, it, part of what I've been doing in the last seven years is working in Finland. And up until the time I was invited to talk about immigrant integration in Finland, I had uh, had my entire career working mainly with Mexican immigrant students and their families, um, and then came into a completely different setting where people didn't think there was any diversity, but there is quite a bit, especially with increasing migration from non-European, non-white, non-Christian countries mm -hmm. coming in to Finland. Um, and the final work that we, we've been doing is with, with the uh, Finnish Ministry of Education. Um, and culture to do some reforms in teacher preparation. And this project is called DivEd. It's one of several projects going on in Finland that I was a part of. We had to focus professional development and we came up with three ideas. And one of the most important one is the fact that school is a site of identity development. That when students are in school, when kids are in school, their identities, who they are, who they come in as, is constructed and reconstructed, and that teachers play a role in undermining or supporting those identities. And very importantly, that in a multilingual, multicultural situation, to see the assets of the kids and to build on those assets, to see that students who they are and what they might become is really in the hands of teachers and it's their attitudes and their strategies and the way their mindset and so part of that is seeing students as having assets um, a big part of identity development is relationship building and understanding that nothing is neutral in schools that everything that happens in the classroom is connected to the larger socio-political context of where um, students live and how they're positioned, how the external society views the particular language that they speak. And so having that work in Finland brought me really around to seeing there's a lot of things that make sense no matter what the um, context is, but wherever you are, you have to understand the particulars of that context. What are the languages? What are the hierarchies of power and privilege than those lines? Um, and that identity is every aspect of human existence. So there's language and ethnicity in, in Europe, or particularly in Finland, race is not talked about as much as national um, origin. 
There is religion, there's sexual orientation, gender expression, class positionality, uh, geography, religion. All of those are lines of power and privilege that we have to pay attention to. And they shift from country to country, city to city, and school to school. Elementary is different from middle, from high school, all those things. So coming back to that, a central focus and what I talked about is this idea of the conceptual reservoir. And I'm not the first person to think of this, for sure, but I spent a lot of time over the last 15, 20 years trying to take this idea um, and make it practical for teachers to see. So if we think of our brain as a conceptual reservoir that we are adding to and drawing from, from the moment we're born, that all of the input that we get, whether it's oral or visual or tactile, is deepening that conceptual reservoir. And that our job as teachers is to develop the reservoir, not to teach kids to read and write, that's a part of it. But literacy in and of itself is just a means to deepening our understandings of the world, our understandings of how things work, mathematical principles, scientific relationships, the environment and our place in it, all of those are part of the conceptual reservoir. And that we can add to that conceptual reservoir and we can represent what we know from that in that conceptual reservoir through any language, any dialect that we speak or learn. And so that when we talk about teaching multilingual learners, what we have to honor is they know something. They come with however many years of experience that they have had before us. So even a five-year-old has five years of experience, of concepts, of knowledge, how to act in the world, how to get along with their peers, their families, what's okay to do, what's not okay to do, that there's limits, that there's not limits. All of those are understandings that kids bring with them through whatever language that they speak. And that once something's in the reservoir, once you know something, you can learn to express that through any language that you know. And I think that that's something that's really important for teachers, especially in the U.S., to see that it isn't English that's the most important. English is one way of representing one code and one of, there's multiple Englishes, but it's not the only way to represent what we know. And that we can add to that reservoir, not just through reading and writing, but reading and writing get privileged in school. That that's the thing that we think school is about is reading and writing. But to me, school is not only about that. It's about what are you reading about? What are you writing about? And are there other ways to get access to those concepts other than just looking at a text? And so that connects to the idea that the second thing that I think is really important is this idea that meaning is everything. So that when we're organizing our instruction, when we're planning for instruction, it can't be what does the textbook say we're going to do next. It has to really be what are the ideas that I want students to grasp. Because kids at all levels of literacy and language development can grasp ideas if we present them to them in an accessible way. So that, you know, the most common thing is using visual images and graphic organizers, but really that's what planning is about, is what are those essential understandings? What are the big ideas and concepts? Not what's the list of vocabulary, but what are the concepts that those vocabulary words represent and how do they fit together? Because if we think about 
kids already know how to think, they may not be able to express what they know already. That's what we're trying to get at. You know, I'm a, probably an intermediate Finnish speaker by this point. So I'm at the point where I can actually understand a lot of what people are saying. But if somebody says five things to me, by the time they get to the fourth thing, I've understood the first and maybe the second. I completely didn't hear the third. The fourth is already too fast, so maybe the fifth thing I can tune into. But I, un, you know, I have those understandings. I, if you look at me, you're not going to say I'm stupid. I just don't yet speak enough Finnish to quickly grasp everything somebody's using. If they showed me a picture, I could connect that picture to the words and to my own understandings. So that's a part of literacy instruction is really thinking about the meaning. And, you know, with my own child who was a bilingual learner, but English was his um, mother tongue, he had a little bit of trouble learning to read in the beginning. And when his teachers would say, you have to read this chapter in the book, I would say to the teacher, well, do you want to know what he can decode on his own or do you want to know what he can understand about the story? And they said, well, understand about the story. And I said, okay, I'm going to read it aloud to him. So tomorrow when he goes to school, he can participate in the discussion. He can't participate in the discussion if you rely only on what he can decode on his own. Now, he's brilliant at this point. Of course, he could learn to read and to, to do the decoding. But um, that's a really important understanding with multilingual learners who don't yet speak or kids who aren't on grade level according to tests which are badly um, organized for really getting at conceptual development is how do we help kids get access to that um, and so then that leads into the final part that i want to talk about in this question and i know i've sort of gone on a little bit um, mm -hmm. is <laughs> how I, it, I feel that in, in, uh, in one of my courses of my master again so i'm loving it <laughs> <laughs> that's great so then it goes to the fact that um, individual teachers are listening to this. You're probably not listening to the podcast in a group setting, um, or maybe you are, which would be great. But um, my colleague and mentor, Ophelia Miramontes, who was a brilliant educator, she was my chair of my dissertation, she's my son's madrina, godmother, um, and Ophelia had passed on. But she and I and her mentor, or a really close colleague, um, Adele Nadeau, we were lamenting one day that so many individual teachers would come to us when we presented her in our classes. Adele was a principal at the time. What do I do in my classroom? What can I do as a teacher? We well, can do a lot as a teacher, but you can't do it all alone in your individual classroom. So then it's the level of how do schools and school-wide perspectives need to be embraced. And that it's really important that in any school, the adults see themselves as a collaborative entity meeting the needs of all the students who attend that school. So it's not just my kids in my classroom. It's I'm a third grade teacher, so what's the third grade goal for this year? How do the third graders interact with each other? Um, and seeing that adults have to work together and step out of the boxes 
we have three separate individual third grade classrooms and then we have three separate individual fourth grade classrooms and Spanish is used in one of those and we have multilingual learners in another but it's only English. How do we see that there's a third grade curriculum, third grade teachers can co collaborate across the third grade? It might not be every day but maybe in planning that they come up with common visual images for essential concepts, or that you can group and regroup students in different ways. And so um, that perspective is that the leadership is very important in a building. And I really um, is, am excited that this year ICMEE is focusing on addressing leaders, school leaders in the e-workshops that are being developed. Because if even if teachers know exactly what to do, if they don't, they aren't given the leeway or the materials or the time flexibility they need to organize themselves, then the best strategies in the world are only going to go so far. So those are the, those are the really big areas that I've come to that if um, I want people to focus on one thing or three things. Those are them. Wow. I just, I, you know, I, I don't want to do any question. I just want to keep listening to you. <laughs> 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 oh, and I wish you would be one of my professors. <laughs> I mean, I love my professors here. I'm not saying, not no, me, I know. But you know what I mean? Um, actually, uh, at the beginning of my master, I read a book that it changed my mindset like, like completely. And it calls linguistic diversity and teaching. <laughs> so that book changed my mindset because I, uh, in my previous master back at home in Spain, I was taught that language should be separate. Like, because I, I studied to be an English uh, foreign teacher. So English will be in one side and Spanish will be in another side. If I'm teaching English, I will only have to teach the foreign language. I only have to teach English. So I didn't learn anything about if, if my students are already having another language, why I cannot use it as an access to that. So for me, this book changed my mindset in the sense that I started to learn what is what was the meaning of having a whole linguistic repertoire and using it in the classroom to like as a tool for my student to learn so you you are the co-author of this book and yes. another book um related to teaching multilingual learnings um the other one is re uh, restructuring a school for linguistic diversity so i just met as you mentioned ophelia miramontes and um adele Nudo. I don't know how to. Yep. So, I mean, I am a privilege because I already read this book. So, for those that they haven't read it, um, what can you what can you talk about this? What what are the hoping that you um, you have to contribute uh, to the field with these books? Oh, <laughs> my babies, <laughs> my <laughs> academic babies, rather than my. <laughs> my child baby. <laughs> you know, one of the things when I was prepared in the late 70s to become a teacher and really throughout um, the 80s and 90s and into um, the 2000s, it and maybe still exists, is this notion that we need to, know, need to know what to do for the normal kids and then tweak for the kids who aren't normal. So whether that means language or that means socioeconomic or that means 
um, ability, disability, that, you know, first we need to know what the real teaching is. And the both books are grounded on the idea that diversity is the norm, that every school embraces kids, even if it looks like it's monocultural, even if it looks like it's the same social class, diversity is the norm, that that that's what we need to prepare for is the fact that kids come in with different abilities, different perspectives, different languages, um, different cultural practices in their homes. And that that's what we need to know as a school, as a teacher from the beginning is how do we prepare for that cultural diversity rather than there's this very narrow norm. And then we have to learn something different for everybody else. No, we need to learn how to differentiate. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a really big key. So that that diversity is the center of planning for all, um, for everything that we do. And that it needs to happen with adults collaboratively, as I said, sharing the responsibility for the success of all students. When you prepare collaboratively, at the center of any kind of restructuring effort and the linguistic diversity in teaching provided problem cases. You know, here's a real life situation that a teacher's in, there's never one right answer for what to do. All you can do is weigh, I'm gonna get more positive than negative out of this decision. And if I made that decision, I'd have different positives and different negatives and trying, but grounding those in some understanding of language and identity and. Um, conceptual development. So part of this collaborative work is we're doing it based on who are the students in our school, what do they need to be academically successful, and not on the desires of the adults to say, no, I'm, I can only teach literacy in the morning. I can't teach literacy in the afternoon. Well, the fact is that in the morning we have this resource that doesn't come in the afternoon. And that's a math and science resource. And so, yes, research says that literacy instruction might be best in the morning, but what are the resources we have? Or I don't want to teach fourth grade, but fourth grade is the place where you're needed, where your skills are needed, where, you know, there's all kinds of ways that individuals, and I'm not saying we're ignoring adults, but that's why adults need to make decisions collaboratively saying, is this going to be the best for the students in front of us? And not, is this the most convenient for me because this is what I've always done? Or this is, you know, what I'd prefer. Of course, you want to balance those um, preferences. Teachers are under attack. Teachers are expected to do too much with too few resources at this point. So the idea of this conversation together is how do we maximize the resources that we do have so that we meet the students' needs, but we as adults feel comfortable in that. And I like to give a, a couple examples of schools that I've worked with, because I think, and I'm not saying these are models, that's the other thing is we totally reject a model's approach to um, organizing instruction. We can learn things from models, but we don't always have on the ground the right kids, the right teachers. It, you know, people say dual or two-way immersion is the, quote, the best or the gold standard for instruction. But you can't do a good two-way immersion if you don't have the right students, right meaning that you don't have some sort of balance. You can't do it if teachers aren't fluent in the languages of instruction. You can't do it if there's parent opposition to their kids being a part of those things. So there's all kinds of reasons why a two, full two-way immersion. We can always support students' primary language. 
even if instruction is in English primarily. We can always send the message that you can learn through your language. Here's websites you can use. Here's books in our library. Even though we don't have any bilingual teachers in our school, we have um, affirmative teachers in our school who all recognize that you have a linguistic repertoire that can be built on um, and get to that. So we're looking at that. And these, these two different schools, I, I want to give an example of. Um, in one school, they had, we call them rounds here, they had five rounds or five classrooms at each grade level. And they um, were doing really well with their native English speaking, primarily African American students. They had done a lot of literacy reforms, but their second language learners were not progressing in the same way. And they did a study of the restructuring book, which has underlying assumptions and organizing principles. And they came up with the idea that they would organize the school day in two parts. And in the morning, the kids would be um, organized by language and literacy profession proficiency mm -hmm. in, in a way, so that um, kids at differing levels of proficiency in English. So the monolingual English speakers in the morning were in one group and the most um, newest to English Spanish speakers were in another group and then there was some literacy differentiation in the other five. In the afternoon they were totally integrated across the five classrooms so that then the kids were mixed which meant that the five teachers had to work as a team to teach the same content and they connected literacy instruction with content instruction. So that no matter what classroom you were in, you were reading and writing about the content topics or related to the content topics in the afternoon and kids worked together and they worked separately. I'm not saying that's the model anybody should follow necessarily, but it allowed them to um, target literacy instruction more closely to the levels of language and literacy proficiency that kids were at. Um, and then it allowed them also to build a community of kids across classrooms so that monolingual um, Spanish speakers and monolingual English speakers and kids who are in a range of bilingualism were all working together in the afternoon on the same things. In another school um, that worked on this, they, they had a different, um, issue that they were trying to deal with and one of those was planning. So we know that if you're really going to have a successful school with linguistic and cultural diversity, a lot of attention has to be made to unit planning and figuring out how are we going to have multiple ways to access these concepts. That's different reading materials, the um, culminating activities. So what this school finally came up with, and they, they did a long study of the restructuring book, and then they divided into three teams and came up with three different plans. Mm. Brought the plans together, looked at what was similar in the plans, what was unique to the plans, they took it to the parents, and they came up with a plan that took some negotiation with the teachers union that, um, Instruction would happen the way it happens um, by grade level and stuff. But once every six weeks, the specialists would take their students um, for two and a half hours instead of 40, once, one time that week for two and a half hours instead of 45 minutes or 40 minutes five times in that week. So that the teachers, every grade level got a half day of planning every six weeks 
with no law, no subs having to be paid for, um, with no um, having to change the kids in a lot of ways. They were able to do that because the music teacher was on the restructuring team. Other people were on the restructuring team. They came up with this idea. Nobody imposed it upon them. Now, it only worked for a couple of years because then resources changed and allocations were lowered. But that's what they came up with. And it was huge in giving them this half day every six weeks to talk about, so how are we going to support each other across the grade levels? What are the um, ideas that we're going to have for language, books and languages other than English? And in this school, one thing that was really important was the librarian and media specialist was part of that planning because the library was an integral part of what are the resources, how do we get at those resources, what are the thinking skills that we need. Um, so those are some, some just a couple of examples of when teachers get that opportunity to work as intellectuals, which they are, they should be seen as cognitively challenging, cognitively um, sufficient and very able decision makers, which a lot of school reform right now does not position teachers that way, right. then ideas can be um, engaged with. So, I think, so um, I think the, the last thing and the first thing is an asset orientation. No matter what you're doing, you see the students and the adults as having assets and, yeah, and build on those. So, that fits right into a kind of I wouldn't say like a reorganization, but just more like a re-emphasis that ICME is really pushing towards that teacher asset, teacher collaboration, and teacher like leadership um, through the through our professional development league, enabling those experts and those professionals to be able to come together and actually produce something that you know actually works for them specifically. <laughs> Absolutely, and that that again goes to the models. Everything is contextualized by who's in the room who's coming to the room, what's the surrounding context, what are the resources we have right this minute? Um, and then what is that external context that's pushing on, on teachers? When I was doing recently some interviews to, to get a position, one of the main questions that everybody asked me is like, why it's important to have a good relationship with your department? And it's like, seriously, like, are you asking me this? Like, we're a teacher, we cannot be by ourselves. We need to be supported. And like the best person who is going to understand you, it's another teacher. So it's like, we need a relationship, a good relationship. It's not like something that we can take for granted. It's like, no, we need it. Like, we need to yeah. collaborate because more than one mind thinks better, you know? So it's like, I was super surprised that they asked me that question. Like, I, I don't understand it, yeah. this question. So as you said, like I was um, like doing some interviews, but I already got a job. Congratulations. Congratulations. I'm very happy about that. So it's going to be a school like actually like ethnicity, uh, like it's very, very diverse. Like the population of the students, like 20% of special needs uh, students, 35% of African-American, 30% Hispanic, 25% Asian. So it's really a, like a really diverse school. So my question, I promise the last one because I know that the podcast is taking too long, even no. though I know that. <laughs> um, my question for you, and this is kind of personal question, it's like, 
what will be the like what will be your advice for someone like me that is going to be a new teacher uh with not so much experience and in a school like this one because i'm gonna work with emergent bilingual for sure so um what will be your your advice for me um a couple things but the number <laughs> one <laughs> the number one is to create your classroom community mm -hmm. to spend the time it takes to establish that you as a teacher have um, respect for and high expectations of all of your students that together the only way one person's going to learn is if everybody can learn and to have the students i know i don't know what grade you're going to be in but um how do you co-construct what's it going to look like in this classroom and for me the message is i don't care what happens outside the walls of this classroom in this space everyone's a learner everyone's a teacher respect for others is essential here regardless of background and that you need to have interactive strategies work with be able to talk talk to students sorry our connection kind of uh oh could you repeat that last little uh, the last little bit there starting from the beginning of you're going to create a community um yeah, kind of. we had uh everybody's a teacher everybody's a learner, I'm learning, and yeah. okay yeah so the idea that in this space everybody is going to learn from everybody else that we're going to be creating opportunities for students to work together so everybody's going to be talking to everybody else that we have a curriculum that everybody has a right to access not that you have to learn you have a right to this knowledge mm -hmm. and we're going to figure out ways that everybody can get at that knowledge so some people are learning through their mother tongue english other people are learning through a language they're not yet fluent in but they still have to learn that and everybody can create the space for people to to do that and i think being really intentional so transparency and intentionality those are two words i think it's really important is you letting the students know why am i organizing things the way they're organized mm -hmm. and i'm organizing them because i want every student in this classroom to be successful um the and one of the things i learned from a teacher named annie um way back is that she would never ask who knows the answer she would say at your table make sure everyone knows the answer i bet that <laughs> So the, this, this idea, there's ways to do individual assessment, but it's this idea that everybody's gonna get it. I don't care who's the best student, I want each student to be the best he or she can be. Mm -hmm. And that's so, you know, of course you gotta have good instructional and you have to have consequences when people fall outside the norms that are constructed. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's any magic bullet, but it goes a really long way. Um, when I taught first grade, and kindergarten, I would make a, um, out of cardboard, or not cardboard, carton paper, whatever that stuff is, <laughs> I would do this big, um, the kids' names in these big block letters and cut them out, and I would give them to them the first day and say, um, put your name up. I mean, color it, decorate it, do whatever you want, and then everybody's name would be around the room. 
And when someone new would come, they'd get their name. And even when someone would leave, they were still part of our classroom community. Right. Um, and I had a lot of mobility. So there were a lot of names that came and people that came and went. I think that's an important thing. You belong here. And I've always liked the idea, instead of having the kids' pictures, you know, like a kid's class picture, mm -hmm. is to have a parent's class picture or a, you know, caretaker class picture, is to invite people to a picnic at the beginning or some event, take pictures of the families and have those be visible in the classrooms, that you're grounded in your families. Right. Uh, you know, 11th grade algebra, that might be difficult. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so, but there are, there are things that you can do. Um, to get mm -hmm. to know who you are. So thank you so much. Like I really, I, yeah. Like yeah, we we love hearing from you. From you, like yeah. <laughs> I like, always plug. One last thing I would say is, do you have the Rethinking Schools guide to first year teachers? No idea. <laughs> okay, so Rethinking Schools is a organization, progressive organization, publishing organization. They have. Um, newsletters they have a lot of books like rethinking columbus was the first one that they did so they have a book that's for first year teachers and they come from a, a progressive you know social justice point of view okay. what does it look like to try to create that kind of classroom i would recommend that book thank you i really appreciate that uh i've been asking people like can you recommend me books so <laughs> yeah, that's one i would recommend perfect so thank you so much for this conversation. Like I wish I, we could keep talking, but we can like you know. I'm running out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was on a good cause. <laughs> Great to see you both. Yeah. So only the last thing, like, would you like to grab at something or like that our audience would like to, like something that you think that our audience would like to hear, like for the last sentences like the three last words so <laughs> the work you do is transformational and it couldn't be a more important job in the world yes we, <laughs> we said, i feel that <laughs> i love that so thank you so much nancy you're welcome like, seriously i love this um <laughs> great um Muchas gracias. Sin nada. Ojalá que nos veamos pronto. Por favor. Bye.